Do you ever wonder why Jesus and his followers were so hated, so persecuted, so reviled? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, welcome to The Line of Fire. You know, for many years now, the theme of Jesus revolution has burned in me. Jesus changing us and calling us to have a revolutionary effect on the world around us. The gospel being a revolutionary message. Jesus being the leader of God's revolution. Not a revolution of hatred or anger or violence or intimidation, but a revolution of love overcoming hate, of goodness overcoming evil, of truth overcoming lies. And I want to open up the scriptures to you today. This is going to be truly eye-opening as we open up the scriptures and understand why Jesus, Yeshua, was so hated, why his followers were so hated and reviled, and why we are hated and reviled to this day. This is Michael Brown. Welcome to the Line of Fire. I won't be taking calls today. One of these days, we're going to dig deep into a subject, so I won't be taking calls I won't be commenting on the latest breaking news either. But let's uh, start in Matthew, the fifth chapter. We know, most of us know the Beatitudes. You've heard the words of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, or blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And, And blessed means truly happy. But what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? Starting in verse 10, again, this is an opening major sermon, Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? Verse 10, blessed, meaning truly happy, are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted for righteousness, persecuted for pursuing righteousness, persecuted for doing righteousness. Verse 11, blessed are you, truly happy are you when others revile you. Why Why would I be happy when people revile me? Why would I be blessed when people revile me? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh, right, that begins to give us an insight. Why were the prophets persecuted? Were the prophets persecuted because they told people what a wonderful life they're going to have? We just want you to know how much God loves you, and you're going to have a wonderful life. Let's kill them! Stone them! No, why would people react like that? Why would they react with hatred and violence to to people that pat them on the back and, and told them what their itching ears wanted to hear? Here you got some corrupt business person, and they're, they're making money by exploiting the poor. And you've got some corrupt priest in the temple who's, who's stealing from the temple and seducing the women. And the prophet comes in and says, God's going to bless you and his smile is on you. They'll applaud somebody like that. But the one who exposes sin, the one who calls out corruption, the, the one who speaks up to abusive power, that one will be hated. What happened to John the Immerser, John the Baptist? He was beheaded. Why was he even in prison in the first place? He was in prison 
because he called out Herod. He called out his adultery. That did not go well. So the darkness is going to hate the light. The darkness is going to try to snuff out the light. And we see this theme all through the New Testament, all through the New Testament. And to the extent we are identified with Jesus, not with a political party, not with a political theme, that's fine to have those affiliations, but to the extent we are identified with Jesus, we will also be hated and reviled the way he was. And many others will listen to us the way they listened to him. Now, he takes up this theme again in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, he's sending out his disciples. He's telling them, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And then he says this very interesting thing in Matthew 10, verse 23. He says, when, when you're persecuted in one city, and flee to another. Isn't that amazing? He had just said, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one endures to the end will be saved. Then when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. What amazing counsel. For truly I say to you, you'll not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And then verse 24, a disciple, a student, is not above his teacher, nor a servant or a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, meaning the devil himself, how much more will they malign those of his household? All right, now I want you to think of this for a minute. Some of us just think, if I could be nice enough, if I could be sweet enough, if I could be non-confrontational, if I could be a loving person, Everybody will love me and everybody will accept me, no matter how devoted I am to God, no matter how closely I walk with him. As long as I'm just nice to people and show love, that everybody will love me. Well, obviously, more people will love you if you're nice to them rather than nasty to them. And to the extent we can be known as people who love our neighbors as ourselves, that's good. That's positive. But, but, but hang on. Hang on for a minute. Was anyone more Christ-like than Christ? Was anyone more compassionate than the Son of God? More kind? More long-suffering? Did any of us die as innocent people and die for the sins of the world the way he did? And yet his name is cursed to this day. So Jesus says, if the master of the house is called Beelzebub. So if, speaking about himself, if they're calling me the devil, what do you expect them to call you, servants of the household? If they're calling the teacher the devil himself, what are they going to call his students? It's an interesting thing. I remember oh, close to 20 years ago, because I remember where we were living when this happened. I discovered an online group of religious Jews who were attacking me because of the work we were doing, sharing the message of Jesus with other Jewish people. As a Jew myself, sharing the message of Jesus the Messiah with other Jews. And by God's grace, we're effective at doing this. And they were maligning me and attacking me and saying all kinds of false, nasty things about me. And I discovered it late at night. Nancy was ready in our bedroom. I went running in to tell her I was so excited. I was so blessed to see it. And I had been opposed before and maligned before. This was kind of an organized effort. And I, I thought, what an honor. What an honor to be hated because of my association with Jesus. What an honor to be rejected as he was rejected. Now, we have this theme coming up again in Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel about persecution for the faith. 
But there's an important passage in John 15. We're talking about why the gospel is hated, why the followers of Jesus are hated. Again, we don't want to be hated because we're obnoxious, because we're stubborn, because we're nasty, because we're mean-spirited. We, we don't want to be hated because of a political affiliation. In other words, if, if you have a political affiliation that causes people to hate you, fine. But that's, that's different than being hated for the gospel. Politics is divisive in a whole different way, all right? Uh, Peter writes that, that if, if you're going to suffer, don't suffer as a busybody. Don't suffer as a thief. Suffer as a follower of Jesus. But in John 15, John 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus addresses this issue. And, and he says this, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Look back in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. All right, let's step back and consider what the Lord is saying. When you are different than others, and when the differences in your life expose the wrong in other people's lives, do you expect those people to welcome you with appreciation? Here, I'll give you an example. Let's say that you are part of a criminal family. It is generations of criminals. And you decide to break away and go into ministry while they continue to make their money off crime. Now, there might be some among them that are convicted and, and reach out and say, hey, help us. We need to get out of here. But otherwise, you are now a threat to them. You are now the outsider. You are now the one in their eyes judging them. You are now the one that is different. Here, I'll, I'll give you something even, even more basic. It's it's five in the morning. It's still dark out. Everybody in, is sound asleep. You, you've got four guys uh, with with beds in this this campus and all sharing this big room. But you decide you're going to get up early and work out. So you set your alarm at five to bing, 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 blaring, and you jump out of bed and you start going about things like, will the, will they appreciate it when you disturb their sleep? Will they appreciate it when you're the one working out and they're the one laying there? No, they want you to stay in bed too and shut that stupid alarm. Let us sleep in, man. It's a weekend. What are you doing? When you go against the grain, when you swim against the tide, you become a threat to people. You become a target. You become hated. When you stand in the middle of the road and say, there's a better way. When you stand in the middle of the road and say, you're going on the path to destruction. Think of that. Now, some will thank you. Some will be saved. But let's say there's this broad road and everybody is heading in this direction. I think this is the way of safety. This is the way of deliverance. And you stand there and say, broad is the road to destruction. Jesus' words in Matthew 7, Luke 13. Broad is the road to destruction. Narrow is the gate. Straight is the way that leads to life. You're on the wrong path. It's like, buddy... We've been five miles on this path already. Buddy, we've been on this path for 10 years already. Buddy, who are you 
tell us we're wrong. Just as the world hated Jesus for bringing light into darkness, we will be hated. When you stand up and, and oppose LGBTQ activism and say God has a better way, you're hated. You become a target. When you stand up and champion the life of the unborn and the sanctity of life beginning in the womb, and when you say, yes, Black Lives Matter beginning in the womb, ah, now you're crossing a line. You become a target. When you say this latest hit rap song by these ladies is vulgar and sexually explicit and degrading to our women and degrading to our daughters, now you've set yourself up as some kind of puritanical hypocrite. You are now a target to be taken down. When we get to the book of Acts, which we'll do momentarily, we'll see that the gospel message is subversive to the society, that the gospel message threatens the status quo. Friends, I'm talking about gospel revolution. God of light, hear our cry. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on the Line of Fire, Michael Brown. Not taking any calls today, but asking the question, why are Christians to this day persecuted around the world? Why are they hated in their communities? Often when they're peace-loving people, often when they are lower caste because they can't have jobs and privileges others have. So they're, they're not a threat. They're not the political power. They're not the dominant power. They're not the ones dictating to others. In fact, they're the servants in certain cultures, like a country like Pakistan. Why, why are they hated and despised? Why do Coptic Christians in Egypt often consigned to, to lower jobs and lower income housing and things like that. So again, not the dominant ruling rich party where they often hated and persecuted by the larger Muslim world. Why? Let's take a look at something very interesting in the book of Acts. Acts, the fifth chapter, the apostles have been flogged. So these Jewish apostles have been flogged by the Jewish leadership for preaching this message of Jesus Yeshua. It was considered divisive. It was considered a threat to the system, a threat to the status quo, a foreign false message. So they're flogged and they're given orders not to speak anymore in Jesus' name. So Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 41, it tells us this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name meaning the name of Yeshua, the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Messiah is Jesus. So they're told, keep your mouth shut. Don't mention his name anymore. And yet, day to day, in the temple courts, house to house, they never stopped teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. They never backed down for the message. But notice they rejoice because they've been counted worthy to suffer for his name. Now, years back, a little over 20 years ago, God began to stir my heart with the theme of revolution. Revolution. That through the gospel, we could see an awakening in America. That had been a burden of mine for many, many years. I'd studied great awakenings. I had been part of a, a spiritual outpouring the last five years of the 90s and a shorter one. Uh, some years before that, 
Again, student of revival and history, knew the importance of spiritual awakening and how it could impact a culture. But I began to think more about the theme of revolution. Revolution is overthrowing the status quo. Revolution is out with the, the corrupt old and in with the better new. Now, most human revolutions, earthly revolutions, replace one bad system with another bad system or, or, or use power and violence and force to, to bring much suffering. I mean, think of the effects of the communist revolution. But the, the concept is that the current system is corrupt. The current system is no good. It cannot be fixed. We need a revolution. And in that sense, Jesus is a revolutionary leader. In that sense, he's not preaching just a new religion, join this new religion, sign on the dotted line and become a Christian and start going to church. Rather, the, the commission that Jesus gives after his resurrection, go into all the world and make disciples, put that another way, it's let's go change the world together. He says, I'm with you to the end of the age. Now, let's go change the world together. How? Through the message of the gospel, through the teaching of the word of God, through changed lives, let's go change the world. That's why it's not a surprise that the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King and others was birthed out of churches in, in the 50s and 60s. That's why it's no surprise that the abolition movement against slavery in the 1700s in England and 1800s in America was birthed out of churches. That's why it's no surprise when missionaries like William Carey went to India in the 1700s, 1700s, and 1800s, and saw what was happening there, uh, saw the practice of widow burning. So a man would die before his wife died, and in Hindu custom, he would, he would then be burned on a funeral parlor. What there was a custom of burning the widow alive. Seriously. So well, why? Well, what could she do without her husband? How could she live? And this would give her a better reincarnation. And Carrie was horrified by this as a Christian and worked tirelessly to see it outlawed. And it was, it was outlawed for many generations as a result of that. That's what, that's what Christians should do. If we live in the midst of a society where there's rampant sex trafficking, we should stand up against it. We find out it's happening in our cities. We should be the ones leading the way, leading the way and making a difference. We see racial inequality. We should be the ones leading the way and making a difference. We see the slaughter of the unborn and abortion. We should be the ones leading the way, making a difference. But that stands as a threat to the system. <clears throat> and there is now the status quo of the religious world that gets far away from the teaching of the Bible. And the real message of Jesus becomes a revolutionary threat. When you go through the words of Jesus... He didn't primarily teach about this new religion called Christianity. Rather, he taught about the kingdom of God and the coming of the kingdom of God. And he brought a message of liberation to the captives, setting the captives free. That's the message of revolution. You are enslaved. You need to be liberated. And he brings the ultimate message of liberation. And this was now considered subversive. So Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, very interesting account. Paul and Silas are preaching, and there is a, a slave girl with a spirit of divination. She can fortune tell, predict the future, things like that. And that's how her owners make money, off of this demonic gift that she has. And Paul drives the spirit out of her, and now she can't tell fortunes anymore, can't predict. So the owners now lose their income. So, so they, they bring Paul and Silas 
So let's start around verse 18, 19 of, of Acts chapter 16. They, they bring Paul and Silas, and after, after he drives the spirit out, verse 19, when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in and attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Let's go back to verse 20. When they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. All right, let's, let's break this down. Paul and Silas were Jews. They were followers of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. But Judaism was a legal religion in Rome. So why accuse them of being Jews? Well, the first thing is they're outsiders. They're, they're not like the rest of us. They're different. But then they're, they're teaching customs not lawful for us. Well, under Roman law, you could not call for the worship of new gods or invent new gods or new religions. It was, it was many, many years, centuries actually, before Christianity was recognized as a legal religion fully in the Roman Empire. So what they were saying in a certain way was true. In other words, the message was disruptive. The message was revolutionary. The message was radical. But on the flip side, they were lying through their teeth because the, the disruption was not because of Paul and Silas. They were preaching a message of life and salvation. The disruption was their reaction to it. Now, the theme continues into the 17th chapter of Acts. And here's one of the most famous verses from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, the opening verses talk about Paul preaching in Thessalonica. And it was his custom, he'd go first as a Jew to the synagogue, go to the synagogue and tell the Jewish people the Messiah has come. Well, as a result of it, says verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. All right, so some of the Jews believed, and then some of the devout Greeks, so you had Gentiles that were worshiping in the synagogue, and a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, taking some of the, some wicked men of the rabble, so the other Jews, right, some believe, and Paul and Silas themselves Jews, but the other Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Look again at verse 6. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Ah, that's it. The accusation that the followers of Jesus have turned the world upside down and are preaching another king, not Caesar, but Jesus. Well, on the one hand, the disruption was completely that of, of the non-believing Jews, the troublemaking Jews in this case. They caused the disruption. They caused the trouble. They stirred the opposition. 
they were the ones that were the troublemakers. Paul and his team, they were peacemakers. So the accusation on the one hand is false. On the other hand, it's true. The gospel does turn the world upside down. It was true, just not in the way they meant it. The gospel is a threat to the ruling system. Listen, you can be a controversial leader and and hold to left-wing values, and you'll be loved and received in many ways, but you take the same personality, and now you begin to hold to biblical values. You will be branded a lunatic. You will be hated as being a self-righteous prude. People say, who do you think you are? It is quite amazing, and you will see how your message and your life, you've seen it some in your own home, your own household, your own job setting, your own school. The gospel really is a threat to the society around us. We come back, I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about the theme of revolution and the amazing experience I had 20 years ago, again, this year. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. So what's Jesus got to do with revolution after all? I mean, think of revolution, you think of anger, hatred, people marching in the streets, you think of burning of buildings, you think of of violence, you think of overthrowing a government and military overthrows the government and someone overthrows the military and Revolutions, well, many revolutions, probably most earthly revolutions are just that. They are destructive. They are violent. The American Revolution was for a good cause, but of course, that was a violent revolution. Most revolutions involved the shedding of a lot of blood. But the revolution that we're talking about and focusing on involved the shedding of the blood of Jesus, that rather than taking life, he laid his life down. And then he has brought about through his sacrificial death more radical change to the world than anyone in history. When I began to teach on the theme of Jesus' revolution in the late 1990s at a Bible school I led at that time in Pensacola, Florida, one student came up to me and he said, you know, when I was in high school, I wasn't a follower of Jesus. He was college age at this point, and he'd come to faith later in his high school years. And he said, you know, I was in high school, I, I was a rebel, I wasn't a follower of Jesus. And we had a class where we were studying the writings of revolutionary leaders and looking at their quotes. And he said the one that struck him as a non-believing, I think, drug-using, rebellious teenager, he said the ones that struck him as the most radical and the most revolutionary of all were the teachings of Jesus. Somehow Jesus was included in this book. And they stood out from the words of other revolutionary leaders. See, it's to the core of my being. It's, it's not just the way I'm introduced on the air, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. To the core of my being, I'm convinced that we are the ones who are to lead moral and cultural revolution. We, followers of Jesus, we, worshipers of the one true God, we who believe the Bible to be God's word, that based on his principles, not by us taking over, not a theocracy, Not where we force everyone to conform and bow down to our views and we set up priests and clergy to run the nation and their penalties if you don't keep the Sabbath or their penalties. No, no, no. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm not talking about a theocracy. I'm not advocating for that. Those have been unhealthy through history. All right. One day we believe Jesus will return 
and he'll set up his kingdom, then let him rule as king. Until then, we have a political system that we work through, and we advocate for ideas, and we seek to change people's hearts, all right? So I am all for justices being appointed, judges and justices and Supreme Court and federal courts that are conservative, that are constitutionalists, that are God-fearing people. And I'm all for them legislating in good ways and having good laws in America. I'm absolutely all for that. I'd love to see Roe v. Wade overturned nationally and then overturned state by state. And then women offered compassionate alternatives as they're struggling and maybe someone that's the horror of a rape and that, that we're there to help and and, and that no one is abandoned, that everyone is cared for before birth and after birth. I, I'm, I'm all for that. So I'm not saying that we abandon politics. No, no, no. I'm not saying we abandon the culture wars. No, to the contrary. We're in the front lines, but we're in the front lines in a gospel-based way. Here, let, let's look at it like this, all right? My latest book, Evangelicals at the Crossroads, will be passed the Trump test. So it, it came, out, came out in July. We're getting great responses from readers. And, and when I refer to the Trump test, I mean it in two ways. One, as followers of Jesus, can we unite around Jesus even if we differ over Trump rather than killing each other? Not literally, but just about with our words and our attitudes. The other part of the Trump test is, can we vote for President Trump and support him as president without compromising our morals, our convictions, our witness? And in the book, I lay out a way that you can. And there's no book like it. I'm quite sure I've read extensively, studied this. No book like it that lays out the evangelical case against Trump and the evangelical case for Trump and then gives us a path where if he's the candidate we support, and to me, it's, it's a no contest, him versus Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. It's Kamala Harris, a, no, a no-brainer there. But for me, not judging you if you differ with me, I'm just speaking honestly with you, but even if Trump gets four more years, Trump-Pence, that's, that's not going to solve America's deepest problems. That, that's not going to fix what ails us the most. There's only a gospel-based solution for that. We're not going to have racial reconciliation without that. We're, we're not going to deal with the scourge of, of opiate addiction without that. We're not going to deal with the epidemic of pornography without that. We're going to deal with the plague of fatherless homes without that. We're not going to fix a lot of problems without a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution. So 1999, I start writing a book. I get gripped. I mean, utterly gripped. I was in the midst of a ministry schedule that was so intense, I was literally involved in ministry-related work 80 to 100 hours a week. And now I'm gripped in the midst of this to start writing this book, Revolution. And... I, I asked our student body, almost 1,200 students, I said, I'm writing this book. What do you think of this subtitle, A Counterculture Manifesto? And they're like, eh. I said, what do you think of the subtitle, A Call of Holy War? The whole, everybody exploded. Now, this was before 9-11. This was before Holy War was being taken a certain way with, with Islamic terrorism. It was harking back to the Christian idea of spiritual warfare and, 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 and Holy War. And that, so it was a spiritual battle. But the book came out in 2000. It's called Revolution, The Call to Holy War. Now, there's a brand new edition about to come out in October. I'll tell you about that in a moment. And obviously with a different subtitle because Holy War has taken on a very different image. All right. The new book coming out in October, Revolution, An Urgent Call to a Moral, uh, to a, a, a Holy Uprising. But here's why I'm telling you the story. Okay. 
in the midst of an intense schedule, I write this book in six weeks, over 300 pages. I- I'm gripped. I'm burning with this. And, 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 and the gospel verses, verse after verse, the, the New Testament, it's coming together in a way that's making sense in terms of the revolutionary calling. After all, didn't Jesus say, leave everything and follow me? Isn't the revolutionary mentality, the worldly revolutionary mentality, life as it is, is not worth living, but the cause is worth dying for, right? So now the understanding is this is the Jesus cause, that this world is fallen, messed up, but we can inherit eternal life and make this into a better world through the gospel. Leave everything. Follow me. Join this world-changing cause. I was gripped with it, and by putting it in the context of revolution and then laying out plainly, we're not talking about a violent revolution. We're, we're, we're not, and I'm not talking about self-defense or the right to bear arms, separate subjects. I'm talking about we don't advance the gospel with weapons. We don't advance the gospel with intimidation. We don't advance the gospel by putting a, a gun to someone's head and say, be baptized or die. That's the exact opposite of the gospel. But I got consumed with this book and I thought, okay, I've written it in six weeks. Obviously, there's a reason I wrote it so quickly because, again, my ministry schedule was crazily busy at, at, during that season. There must be a reason that I wrote it so quickly. I reached out to one of my publishers and I said to them, listen, I just wrote this book, Revolution. I feel it's a major theme that we're to introduce to the body of Christ. There's a Christian booksellers event in June. Can we, so, so I'm talking to them, it's probably February. And I said, can we get the book out? We'll, we'll have a special meeting. We'll, we'll, we'll book some time and present the theme, present the book. And they said, Oh, the CBA, Christian Booksellers, that's been booked for, for months. Every slot is filled. And they said, plus, we couldn't get the book out that quickly anyway. They said, but listen, if you get us a clean manuscript by March 1st, so clean, edit it for us to, to work with, and then we'll proof it and take it from there. If you get us a clean manuscript by March 1st, we can get it out by September 1st. And I thought, September 1st? Who cares about September 1st? What makes September 1st a magical date? Who, why? Why did I write with such intensity and day and night and through the night? And why did I do that for September 1st? <laughs> you know what it's like? It, it's like you race to the airport. You, you go through red lights. You, you go 100 miles an hour in a 60-mile zone. You have to you, get to the airport now. And you arrive four hours early. It's like, you just drive slowly. You could have gotten there in plenty of time. Why? So that's what I was wondering about. Why in the world would I write this book with such intensity, such fervor, such passion, in such a short period of time to get it out for September 1st? What makes that date so magical? And then one of the editors said to me, he said, <clears throat> you know, there's that big youth event in D.C. on September 2nd. Maybe we can have the book ready for that. And I said, that's it. I understand it. That's it. That's what we're to do. We're to give away copies of the book at this event called The Call DC. Now, the organizers of The Call were told that at most they'd have 50,000 people because they only started organizing the event in early 2000. And they were told no matter what network you have bringing people together, the whole bit, there's a science to this, 50,000 max. That's what you'll have, which still be a great crowd in DC. I call a friend of mine and I said, I got this vision to get this book out. Maybe, you know, give away a thousand copies at the event or something. And he said, no, you're to give away a hundred thousand copies. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. You're joking. A hundred thousand copies. What? They're expecting 50,000 people max? hundred thousand copies. Are you serious? 
And he says, here, let's go to the printer. Uh, let's go to the publisher. Let's see if they can get the book for uh, print the book for us for for eighty eighty five cents a book, and and then we'll 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 and I'll help you raise funds for it, and we'll get the book out. Okay. Problem number one: it's a three hundred thirty page book, it's selling for thirteen dollars, which is a great price. But you th- if I get it in bulk from the publisher, maybe it's like four dollars a book, eighty to eighty five cents. Are you kidding me? Oh, and then even at that eighty five cents a book, that's eighty five thousand dollars. Where, pray tell, are we going to get $85,000 from? We're a ministry. And right now, we owe one publisher about 10000 in terms of books that we're selling and then pay them after we sell them. <laughs> we'll make a long story short. I proposed it to the publisher. They felt God was in it. Yeah, this is all true. They then come to me. I didn't, I didn't give them a price. They then said, we can print it for 80000 a book plus shipping, which would be like $10,000 in shipping because it's on two 18-wheelers that the books were shipped in, 100,000 books. There's a lot of books. And through a stranger, someone I'd never met, who himself didn't have the money in his organization, he said, I'll fund it. I'll fund the money. And, and then he didn't have it. And then God supplied for him. And then he gave it to us. And then my friend helped raise the money for the shipping. And... Here's the event. Over 300,000 people there. Over 300,000 people came for 12 hours of prayer and fasting, mainly young people. And we, we had 17 buses come up from Pensacola, over 700 people, the largest group from anywhere in America from our Bible school. So most of the school came up. And I preached on that theme of Jesus' revolution. And because there were so many, the organizer said only one book per family. We still gave away over 70,000 copies. Gave away over $1 million retail value of books. Gave away that day. And we sensed it was the beginning of something. We sensed something was in the air. And many ministries with young people have come out of that. Many things have been birthed out of that amazing day. But that's part one of the story. Part two is today. We're talking about Jesus' revolution. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, you don't often associate the theme of revolution with the gospel, but it is the ultimate revolutionary message. Overthrow the status quo, out with the old, in with the new. Replace the corrupt and fleshly with that which is heavenly and good transformation revolution is radical dramatic change that's what jesus brings is the ultimate revolutionary leader but he fights with different weapons think of that he wins the world by laying down his life he will come one day as the judge but he changed the world by dying for our sins not by coercion not by force but by laying down his life and calling us repent repentance is a revolutionary turn turn away turn around turn away from what's wrong turn to god these are revolutionary concepts. And that's why the followers of Jesus are so hated and despised because we're against the system, the system of the age, the system of this world. And, and, and while we're involved in the political system, our beliefs transcend that system. Our ultimate loyalty is to a heavenly kingdom. And then as citizens of that heavenly kingdom, we seek to live productive lives in whatever country we find ourselves and serve that country for its good. So let's now fast forward 20 years later. In my revolution book back in the year 2000, I said very plainly that cultural revolution is at hand, that things are going on in society, there's a seeking, there's a yearning. Cultural revolution is at hand, and it's either going to be 
heaven sent or hell bent? Who's going to rise up first and turn the tide? Friends, the answer is the world did. The answer is the flesh did. The answer is activists with other causes. Just think of the transformation of our society with LGBT activism. Just that from the year 2000 until today. Unrecognizable in terms of the level of changes that have happened in America. And, and we could go item after item where so many changes have happened for the worse. Even some of the vile, sexually explicit, exceptionally vulgar content of some songs uh, whose names I won't mention on the air, just reading more about some of the content. You can't even look at the lyrics. It's just too vulgar. Some from men, some from women. I mean, uh, uh, degrading. And, and this just becomes so much more common. Little girls, little boys learning the words and singing along. Just a general degrading of the culture and the rise of atheism. The new atheism, the effect it had and the, the dropping out of church and the dropping out of faith. There has been a revolution, a cultural revolution, and it's been for, for the worst, not, not for the best, but for the worst. And now you add in with that the, the radical socialism and the cancel culture and the mobocracy. We're at a turn, as I've said many times, we're, we're about to go over the cliff as a nation. So the warnings that we sounded, looking back 20 years later, the feeling is OMG, as in oh my God. I was on a conference call with one of my publishers, and it so happens that an editor that worked with the publisher in the year 2000, the, the one that said, isn't that youth event September 1st, 2000 going to happen, the call DC, he's now working with my primary publisher, publisher he worked with back then, no longer exists, now working with my primary publisher. We're on a conference call, and one of his colleagues asked me, that book, Revolution, that you wrote in 2000, can we see it? I said, sure. And they said, would you be interested in putting out a revised and updated edition for 2020? We think there's something to this. Well, next thing, I, I get gripped with this, and I go back and start reading the book, and I'm literally shaking on the inside, looking at what we warned about 20 years ago. The things that we said were coming, and now going back and reading it and saying, oh my, we warned and people didn't believe us when we said a cultural revolution is at hand. They didn't believe us. When we said the only antidote is a Jesus revolution, they didn't believe us. They didn't hear us. Some did. Most did not. Now, 20 years later, we find ourselves really at the precipice. So I went back to this book, again, with the new title, Revolution, an Urgent Call to a Holy Uprising. It comes out October 6th of this year. Revolution, an Urgent Call to a holy uprising. Yes, it's a radical book because it's a biblically-based book. Yes, it's a radical book because it looks at what Jesus actually says and how he lived and what he calls us to. You know, our American version of, of convenience store Christianity, and you just go in there, shop, get a few items, and move on. Or this comfortable spectator Christianity where we just kind of come together, enjoy a lovely performance, and maybe put in a little money and go home. That's not the gospel. That's not the message of the gospel. Look, I've, I've spoken all around the world. I've, I've served in persecuted countries. I, I, I have literally prayed for people. We, we laid hands on them, formally ordained them to ministry in certain countries, laid hands on them, 
and sent them out to preach, and they were subsequently killed for preaching the gospel. Yes, I'm not exaggerating. I preached in places where we were nearly killed for preaching the gospel. One of my best friends in the world was stoned for, for preaching. You can still see the scars from when he was stoned decades ago. I became friendly with very famous persecuted Christians from, from the last century. Died probably in the, in the 90s, early 2000s. The story is well known. In prison, tortured for their faith. Christians hated around the world. Christians reviled and opposed. Christians as a threat to the system. Light as a threat to darkness. Friends, if you follow Jesus... You'll help many people, you will gain many friends, and you will acquire many enemies. People will hate you. What does Paul say? Second Timothy chapter three, verse twelve. In Second Timothy, Paul is talking about his own sufferings, his own hardships, the things he suffered in this city, in that city, in that city. Remember, he was beaten, he was whipped, he he suffered all kinds of deprivation, he was imprisoned frequently. Second uh, Timothy, the third chapter, he says. My persecutions, you know about them. Verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, the words of Paul, indeed, all, does that include you? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Second Timothy 3.12, write it down. All who desire to live a godly life in Messiah Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What do you know? All who live a godly life in Messiah Jesus will be persecuted. Here, let me, I'm going to switch this up so radically it's going to jar some of you. I'm going to talk about President Trump for a minute. I understand that there are people who hate the president because of his demeanor, because of his character, because of his misogynist past, and various things like that. I understand that. But remember, it was the same Donald Trump in terms of being obnoxious, in terms of being narcissistic, in terms of being self-centered, in terms of being misogynist, in terms of boasting about his adulteries. It was the same Donald Trump who was loved by the liberals and the progressives, right? It, it, was, <clears throat> it was the same Donald Trump that with his uh, Celebrity Apprentice, I never watched The Apprentice, but Celebrity Apprentice and, and all these celebrities wanted to be on the show, right? It was the same guy that could obviously be vulgar. If, if, if I said, okay, Donald Trump, give me word association, no one would say pure, humble, gracious, kind, no one would think of words like integrity, morality, nothing. Christian, Bible, God, none of those words would come up. Correct? All right? Now, the same people that loved him, revered him, the same Hollywood that enjoyed him or that put up with him or wanted to be on a show, whatever, that welcomed him as a colleague and Miss America pageants and all of that, revile him and hate him. You say, well, that's because he's obnoxious. No, he's obnoxious before. Well, that's because he was misogynist. Well, he certainly was misogynist before with his comments and actions, but it's changed his behavior. But certainly he was that before. And yet he was one of the guys and part of the crowd and friend of the other celebrities and politicians. And he had money. So if you're a politician, you like him because of his money and on and on. Right. 
Why does he get so hated? One reason is he changes his values in terms of abortion, in terms of standing up for Christians. And now he becomes absolutely revolved. That's one reason. Again, I'm not comparing Donald Trump to Jesus. Obviously. Obviously. I'm not even comparing Donald Trump to a, a baby Christian. I'm not even saying that. But I'm saying that when his views changed and went against the the tide, went against the spirit of the age, that's when, that's when some of the great hostility came and the progressives and liberals in the Hollywood crowd that once looked at him as a comrade in arms now hated his guts. There's a reason for it. So friend, when you align yourself with the light, the darkness will hate you. When you stand for change, gospel-based change, the world will reject you. Good news, it rejected Jesus, and he overcame the world. That's our calling, to live revolutionary lives through the gospel. And we, as God's people, are the answer to the society, the sickness, the pain, the alienation, the questions. We, through the gospel, have the answer people need. Hey, visit my website. Have you done that yet? Maybe you just started viewing us, listening to us. AskDrBrown.org, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. Let us know how you came in contact with our work. Check out the thousands of hours of free articles and free videos. And then sign up, takes you 30 seconds. Sign up for a weekly e-blast. They're informative, great stuff, great content for you. And when you do, you get a free mini e-book as well. So go to our website, AskDrBrown.org, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. Sign up for our emails and... I'll speak to you again.